Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. Today we're going to finish Luke chapter 1. Last week we saw Mary visiting her relative Elizabeth. We saw the Holy Spirit moved in a powerful way. The unborn John leaped. The Holy Spirit filled Elizabeth and she spoke over Mary. And we ended our passage last week with seeing Mary give a joy-filled song of praise. In today's passage, Luke's camera is focused squarely on this family. The little baby John, his mother Elizabeth, and his father Zachariah. We're going to pick back up in verse 57. Quote, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. End quote. In these two short verses, we see that the word from the Lord that was sent through the angel Gabriel has come true. Now, let me remind you what Gabriel told Zechariah way back in verses 13 and 14. Quote, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. End quote. Gabriel had told Zechariah he would have a son in his old age and that many would rejoice at the birth of this baby boy. And that is exactly what happened. In verses 57 and 58, we see many people rejoicing over John's birth. We can see that John's birth, Elizabeth's health and safety through this whole process, all give evidence to the great mercy of God. Let's pick back up in verse 59, quote, And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. God had told Abraham in Genesis 17 and Moses in Leviticus 12 that all boys were to be circumcised at the eight-day mark. Zechariah and Elizabeth, being the faithful people that they were, did what the law had said. Now, this miraculous birth appears to have drawn quite the crowd. John being born to parents this old went against everything everyone knew about pregnancy. God was clearly at work, so I can't really fault the crowd too much for wanting to be a part of it. But maybe they're a little too much a part of it, right? They've decided it's their job to name the baby. But Elizabeth is not having it. She knew what Gabriel had said. I'm guessing at some point, Zachariah wrote down what had happened for Elizabeth. I mean, it was probably pretty odd for her when Zachariah came home unable to talk. So she plainly says, this baby will be named John. This overly invested crowd is apparently looking to overrule Elizabeth. They're not feeling the name John, so they start making signs to Zechariah. We know Zechariah can't speak, but it also may be the case he can't hear either. Otherwise, they would just ask him and let him do the signing or the writing, right? Instead, they make signs to him, implying he also can't hear. Let's continue our story in verse 63 and following. Quote, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, 
His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. End quote. You know, Zachariah was skeptical at first. He wasn't so sure about this message the angel Gabriel had given him. But think about all that's happened since then. He's been unable to speak, possibly unable to hear for some time now. And at this moment, I mean, he is looking directly at his son, which seemed like an impossibility not that long ago. Zechariah endured quite the trial for his lack of faith. And you have to wonder if that hardship, that consequence, actually did him good. Because sometimes... There is good that comes from hardship. There is good that can come from trials. Think about what James wrote. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 and verse 12. Quote, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. End quote. In these verses, the word James uses for test is a word that was frequently used in the context of a silversmith. A silversmith would put intense heat on the silver, and in doing so, the imperfections would just rise to the top. So then the silversmith could scoop out the imperfections and then just kind of repeat the process over and over until there were no imperfections, till there were no flaws left in his work. He knew his work was done when he could look down at his heated silver, see his own face, his own image reflecting back to him. James is telling us that's how the Lord can use trials in our life, to make us so that we reflect him. When I think of Zechariah's ordeal, I think of the Lord using this trial in his life to make Zechariah more like his Lord. And that is a great mercy. Listen, trials are no one's favorite thing to talk about. But in the book of James, that was divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, we are told to count it all joy. That the Lord can do something we would not believe through the trials that happen in our life. So maybe if God's word gives witness that trials and hardships can actually produce beautiful things, And maybe if we know, as Romans 5.8 tells us, that God's love was proven on the cross, maybe we can trust the nail-scarred hands that's walking us through the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe Zachariah's trial of muteness and deafness was for his good. The great mercy of the Lord has instilled new faith in Zechariah. That faith builds courage so that Zechariah backs up Elizabeth and he writes out on that tablet, he says, his name is John. Zechariah's faith was cranked up in his trial and that has led to his obedience. Then all of a sudden, this man who could not speak, who possibly could not hear, is now back to his old self. And the first words out of his mouth are blessings to God. He is praising the Lord for the great things God has done. In case there was even a shred of doubt in anyone's head, Zechariah uses his first words to let them know this was a work of the Lord. He could have been bitter. He could have been annoyed. He could have been frustrated. There are so many things he could have been considering what he went through. But instead, he was really excited. He was thankful. He was absolutely pumped to be a part of what God was doing. 
So maybe in the midst of trials, when things don't seem fair, we don't ask God, Lord, why is this happening to me? But maybe in those trials, those hardships, we ask the Lord, Lord, how do you want to use this thing? How do you want to use this trial? How do you want to use this hardship? How do you want to use this season to make me more like you? How do you want to use this thing to grow my faith? How do you want to use this time to use me to bless other people? What do you want to do in me through this? Because even though this is uncomfortable, even though it's hard, even though I don't like it, if I'm being honest, I trust you because I know you love me. I know you're in control and I know that you are good. Maybe our perspective in the midst of these trials can make all the difference. Can you imagine how the people must have talked about this? How word must have gotten around so fast? I mean, who could John be? Who was this baby boy going to grow up to be? Well, Zachariah knew, and Elizabeth knew too. Let's pick back up in verse 67. Quote, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, End quote. Now it is Zechariah's turn to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He had messed up in the temple before Gabriel. Remember, Gabriel was not impressed. But that did not mean that God was done with him. Because there's more grace in God than there is failure in any of us. That includes Zechariah, that includes me, and that includes you too. So here in verse 67, Zechariah is now not only a priest, but he's also a prophet. And as I say that, it occurs to me that I should say a quick word about what prophecy means. It's a common misconception that prophecy in the Bible is strictly made up of words that forecast the future. And sometimes that's what it is, right? Like we have words of prophecy from the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, saying a lot of things that were going to happen in the life of Jesus. So sometimes that's what prophecy is. But it's not the only use of the word prophecy in the Bible. Sometimes in the Bible, Prophecies are words from the Lord that are meant to build up the people of God, that are meant to encourage the people of God. And that really seems to be more of the category we are going to be working with in Zechariah's prophecy here. I just want to point out one other thing. His prophetic words can be divided into two sections. The first section is Zechariah praises God for his plan of salvation. And the second is Zechariah celebrates that his son John has such an amazing role, such a cool role in God's plan of salvation. So with that said, we're going to pick back up in verse 68. Quote, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days, end quote. So this first section was Zechariah praising God for his plan of salvation. In Zechariah's prophecy, we really see an active God. He is not passive here. Just look at all the actions he takes in these few verses. He has visited. He has redeemed. He has raised up a horn of salvation. He has spoke by the prophets. He has saved his people from their enemies. He has shown mercy. He has remembered his covenant. That's a lot of things. 
In the Old Testament, a horn is a symbol of strength or power. Zechariah is prophesying that God has brought a powerful salvation, one that comes through the line of David, through Abraham, one that the prophets of old foretold of. You'll actually see David and Abraham referenced quite a bit in the New Testament, just like in this passage. And I would like to give you an Old Testament glimpse as to why that is. And to do that, we've got to go back, way back, like all the way to the beginning. All the way back in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, God had created this beautiful place for Adam and Eve to enjoy, to enjoy God in that beautiful place. And he gave them one rule. In this place of perfect harmony, they had one thing they could not do. They had one opportunity to rebel against their God. And that's exactly what they did. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command, sin and death entered into the world, entered into our story. The story mankind has made for themselves is one of brokenness, guilt, and judgment. In a world with so much pain and so much suffering, it can be so easy for us to ask, is there hope? Yet in this, God was working another story. He was working a story of redemption, of hope, of peace, a story that demonstrates his love. I want you to look at what he told the serpent, who the New Testament identifies as the devil, as Satan himself. Genesis 3, verse 15, quote, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, end quote. Such an interesting verse, right? But it does start an interesting theme in the Old Testament. I mean, who is his offspring? Would he defeat the enemy Adam and Eve fell to through his own injury? Would he bring hope? Would he bring light to a suddenly dark world that is plagued by sin and death? Offspring is a word and theme that makes frequent appearances in Genesis and in the rest of the Old Testament. Yet two of those appearances may be most significant. The first is in the life of Abraham. In Genesis 22, verse 18, listen to what God says to Abraham. Quote, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. End quote. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, points out to us that the offspring here in Genesis 22:18 is singular. That means it's referring to one offspring in particular. Could this offspring be the one who would bruise the head of the serpent? Is that how he would bless all nations? One of Abraham's great-grandsons was named Judah. Jacob, who was Abraham's grandson, spoke over Judah, and he said that in his line would come kings, and the scepter would never depart from his hand. Would the offspring be a king? There was a king in Judah's line, and he's one of the most significant, one of the most famous figures in the Old Testament. That's King David. Now listen to what is said about King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. Quote, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. End quote. In the Old Testament, there are certainly prophecies that have meaning in the now of when they were written and future meaning in the not yet of something that was to come much later on. See, there would be a king that would come directly after David. It was King Solomon who would build a house for the Lord. But King Solomon, though he lived a long life, his 
kingdom did not last forever. He died, and in the next generation, the kingdom was torn in two. But there would be a king that comes much later in the line of David, whose throne was not like a normal throne. There would be a king that would come much later, who would have an eternal throne. Now, Abraham, then David, both mentioned by Zechariah, and we see why. Look at how the New Testament starts. Matthew 1, 1 says this, Quote, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, end quote. I want you to see that the whole Old Testament has been building towards a moment in history when something amazing was about to happen. That moment was wrapped up in Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Surely there's many enemies that God has defeated for his people as Zechariah was prophesying. But the most significant enemy is surely that ancient serpent that tripped up Adam and Eve in the garden. Surely the most significant enemy is the devil himself. And 1 John 3 verse 8 says, quote, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, end quote. This horn of salvation, this power, this strength of salvation that Zechariah is prophesying about is this coming Messiah, who comes from Abraham, who comes from David, who is able to defeat the works of the devil, to overcome, to be victorious where Adam and Eve failed, to conquer where they were conquered, to bring peace where they brought pain. Can you blame Zechariah for being overwhelmed and excited over this? I can just imagine him as he is prophesying these words, these beautiful words, that he is making eye contact with everyone that he can. And then can you just see that he turns his eyes to the infant in front of him, to his son John, and in verse 76 and following, he says this, quote, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace, end quote. A great message deserves a great messenger. That is the role John is honored to receive, to tell the Messiah foretold from long ago who would destroy the works of the devil. It is him who gets to be the first proclaimer that salvation is here, that forgiveness is possible because of God's tender mercy. God's salvation was the sunrise invading the darkness. Now, they may say it is darkest just before dawn, and that was surely true for the life of God's people, for the people of Israel. They had no word from the Lord for 400 years, and now the light of God's salvation is shining the way of peace to his people. John was born. John was called to be a signpost for the way of peace. Now, if you're listening to this and you are a follower of Jesus— That is your calling too. It is your calling to be a signpost that says Jesus is the source of peace. He is the great salvation that God has raised up. We live in one of the most anxious times. You don't have to look far to hear that anxiety, depression, persistent sadness are all on the rise. It is a confusing, chaotic, broken world. Let's make sure that God's people are clear about the way of peace and the only one, Jesus Christ, that can bring that peace. Let us be the people that are dealers of hope, of peace, that can say, 
There is a God who has been working the story of humanity since the very beginning. And he has been doing so to bring about this story of redemption so that you may know him, so that you may be brought into his family. One last verse, verse 80, quote, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel, end quote. John's story is just getting started. Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, quote, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. End quote. So in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain. Because he gives purpose, and that purpose rings through eternity. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt at steadfastpodcast.com.